0: Alright, and as they're leaving, if you would stand with me today for the reading of God's Word. Our passage today is going to be in Genesis 37, verses 2 through verse 11. Give you a moment to get there. Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through verse 11. These are the generations of Jacob. "'Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. "'He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. "'And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. "'Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons "'because he was the son of his old age. "'And he made him a robe of many colors.' to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord.
1: let's uh, let's pray as we prepare to look into this passage Lord lord we 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 don't know what the future holds we don't know what our life um what is before us in our life you see the beginning from the end. Lord, I pray that as we look into this passage that we would see your Son. I pray that as we look into our future, that it would be a vision of you, Jesus, that would be at the center. Help us this morning as we consider your words to be encouraged by that which Your Spirit would want to encourage us and be humbled by those things that ought to humble us. We thank You. We pray all these things in Your name. Amen. With the words, these are the generations of Jacob, we begin the final section of Genesis. And I want to remember for a minute where where we've been. Uh, Because we've we've been in Genesis for a bit, so just kind of a quick refresher course. God created everything, and He called it good. He said, this is good. This is very good. And He gave Adam dominion over all of creation. He put Adam in a place to rule over, as a representative of God Himself, to rule over creation. He put him in charge, but sin mucked the whole thing up. And from chapters 3 of Genesis to chapters, chapter 11, everything that happens is a downward spiral. It just gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. While perhaps the secular worldview would like to say, that the achievements of man in civilization are progressing. The Bible and the biblical worldview says that while there are many things that man, who is created in the image of God, does, and, and, and many of those things can be good, there's many things we can't accomplish on our own, the only thing that progresses is the mess we make. The only thing that that gets more and more and more is not, we're not progressing towards some greater thing. We're we're progressing on our own towards a bigger and bigger mess. You'd think at this point in the story that God might say, well, maybe, maybe man isn't the man for this job, if you will. Maybe... He's not the one to be put in charge to rule, but God doesn't. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, God inserts himself into the story of history, and he makes a covenant. He makes promises with Abraham that he'll make him a family, and he'll make him a people, and he'll increase his, 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 his descendants and his offspring, and his offspring will bless the world And there's some hope in the story, finally. And then each patriarch, each authority, right, that God chooses, and and He does choose them from generation to generation, interestingly, they they have some wins and they have some losses. There's some good things that Abraham does, and there's some real, you know, bonehead moments. And we're kind of like, what are you thinking? Then we look at our own life and we're like, okay, I get it. And there's Isaac and there's Jacob. And now we get to this point in the story where it's, these are the descendants of Jacob. These are Jacob's sons, and we're kind of wondering, what's going to happen next? What's this next generation going to do? How are they going to fare in this story? And in truth, we kind of, uh, if you're like me, you kind of begin to wonder, like, how well is this really working? You know? How well is this really Working, God has made some promises, but the question that remains for us is how, how can God keep His promises that He's made with all of this sin and all of this trouble that's going on? Are these patriarchs the right guys for the job, or is this the right method at all? How is this going to work out? And there's, there's often, I think, some automatic cynicism in our lives. I don't know if this is just part of our human nature, if this is part of uh, uh, you know, the culture that we uh, have grown up in. I'm not entirely sure what percentage is, is what, but, but there's like an automatic cynicism towards anyone that is placed in authority or is placed as a ruler over us, right? Right? Maybe some of us spend our workday thinking about how boss is a four-letter word, you know? The very fact of someone's position or power over us kind of disposes us to disliking them, or at least perhaps suspecting them. We have this automatic assumption that if someone else has say in our life, that it is necessarily taking something away from us. Perhaps even cheating us of something we ought to have. Another way of, to say this might be, when someone has made an authority over us, our first reaction is to think of what we are losing by that fact rather than what we might be gaining You know, and that, that reaction is actually not totally unfounded, am I right? Because as I've been saying, in the story of Genesis and also in our own lives, people mess stuff up. And the more authority, the more power, the more say they have, the bigger those messes are. And when they have authority or, or rulership, if you will, over us, the mess that they create becomes our mess. And we have to deal with it. It's actually, this kind of skepticism actually defies uh, what, what we know to be true. You see, when, when you're in a situation and something goes wrong, you, what's the first question that we often ask? Who's in charge here? Right? We, we inherently understand that someone needs to have the authority and the power and the responsibility to take care of things. Or consider this, you, you've had a coach who told you what to practice and, and what play to run and whatever sport you're playing, and you know, you know how bad it is when you have a teammate who instead does their own thing, how that doesn't work. And you know how good it is when that coach's wisdom is applied through his authority, and it makes you a better athlete, and it makes your team a better team than you would have been if you just kind of got together and played like a pickup ball team or something or you've had a boss who's led the team well in such a way that you were able to not only be more efficient as a team but you as an employee were more proficient in your job right and, and how that actually led to you perhaps getting the promotion that you got or the raise that you got or or, or whatever actually benefited you that they're good Uh, authority over you had a trickle-down effect that actually benefited you. You also know what it's like when you have that co-worker who can't get along with anyone or any boss, no matter who they are, and just how dreadful it is to work with that person, right? You know of fathers who parent their children, in such a way that they trained them to be better people, to know more, to live more wisely, even if and often because they didn't allow their kids to do whatever they wanted to do, but guided them, disciplined them. See, the problem isn't necessarily that certain people are in charge, God put Adam in charge, and and God gave him Eve to help him in his duty, and God called this whole thing good. He's kind of the authority on what good is. He called it good. God has created the world to have hierarchy, he knit it that way before sin ever entered the world. He knit it into the very fabric of creation itself for our good, for the good of all creation. If God created it that way and it was good, should we not lean into it rather than lean away from it? See, what we see typified... In the fall, we see typified in in the Tower of Babel, in those first 11 chapters where everything is just in a total spiral, the problem isn't so much that people have authority. The problem is the refusal to submit to the right, God-given authorities. The problem is the refusal to submit to God as the authority in the first place. Even for those who are in authority, for them to submit to the authority over them. And so the question I want you to wrestle with, uh, and as we kind of take everything that's happened so far in, in Genesis and we begin to uh, move into this final story of, of who Joseph is and what happens with Joseph and his brothers, the question I want you to wrestle with is this morning is whether the problem is that there are authorities, or, or is the problem with the authorities, with those who would rule, or is the problem with us all, regardless of where God puts us in life? It's a problem with what we do about it, or what we do with where God has placed us. So as our passage starts in verse 2, it starts by telling us that Joseph is 17 years old. He's a kid, right? He's not a little kid, but he's also not a full-grown man like his brothers who he's shepherding alongside. They are full-grown men. And it says that Joseph brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. Not, not that Joseph's report was faulty in some way, but but he reported his brothers' faults. Now my guess is that if you were like me and and, and you've grown up, you know, with some church experience, you've heard the story of Joseph before. you've probably been told that Joseph... See, Joseph here, as a 17-year-old, he's kind of this arrogant, cocky kid, and the things that happen to him in his life, they kind of like readjust him so that he can be the man that God wants him to be later on and needs him to be later on. And, and I, what I want to do this morning um, is completely destroy that vision of Joseph because I, think, because I think it's totally wrong. As I studied this passage and as I studied... Uh, these verses, I've come to the conclusion that the text doesn't actually give us any indication that that's the case. As we look at Joseph's life, we don't actually see any significant transformation. We've seen transformations in people's lives, Jacob's life or Abraham's life. We've seen transformations. We've seen people's names change, and they're totally different people. We don't see that in Joseph's life. Outside of these ten verses, no one argues for any significant character issue in Joseph. On the contrary, he's upheld as a model of integrity and faithfulness in the face of adversity and wickedness, right? In other words, the burden of proof... That, that for some reason Joseph is something other than a model of integrity and faithfulness, when he's 17, is on those who would argue that his character is different here. We would assume that if all the rest of his life he is this way that he's also this way in these 10 verses, unless there was something there, something that the Bible actually tells us that gives us an indication that it's different. So is there any evidence of that? Well, the, the first objection that some people might have or that I've heard, and listen, if you've said these things, if you've thought these things, if this is just what you assume to be true, grace on you it's what I thought until I started studying this passage. And I started talking to some other guys who were studying this passage, and and we were all like, wait a second. So, So grace on you, grace on me, let's all just like look at the text and go, what does the text say here? Okay. So the first objection is that Joseph's a punk for bringing a bad report. I've heard this, right? You've heard this. Well, it's kind of, He's kind of a tattletale, right? He's kind of a snitch, right? Snitches get stitches or something. I don't really know what the saying is, but but we're, that's kind of like the. And we go, well, yeah, he's kind of a punk because he, he gives this bad report of, of his brothers. You see, actually, in next week's passage, in verse 14, we see that Jacob sends Joseph to get a report of his brothers again there. And so we, we would understand that this is actually probably a pretty common occurrence that. That Jacob, who owns all of these flocks, it's all of his possessions, his brothers are living uh, uh, Joseph's brothers are living off of their father's wealth, right? That Joseph or Jacob wants to know how his flocks are doing. And so he sends Joseph to go get a report of well, how are things going? Are the brothers okay? Are the flocks okay? Far from doing something morally questionable. Joseph actually is acting in accordance with what the Bible says is right. I think about this. Giving, if the brothers are doing poorly, and we have every indication by the brothers' behavior throughout the story of Genesis that they are wicked, that they're selfish, that they're negligent, that is the consistent character that we are given. In fact, It's the brothers who will later have a transformation of character, not Joseph. Joseph's not the one that changes. It's the brothers that change through what happens. So we have every reason to believe that the brothers were, in fact, doing bad. And that Joseph was, in fact, telling the truth. And it's Jacob's flocks, right? The sons, they have a moral responsibility to steward the flocks that are in their care well. And Joseph has a responsibility to honestly report when his dad asks him to. To do otherwise would not only be bearing false witness, but it would also be showing partiality to his wicked, negligent, and lazy brothers. Something that we are warned against from Proverbs to James and throughout the Bible, just constantly. People like that, people like Joseph's brothers, don't don't hang out with them. Don't be a part of their schemes. Don't show partiality, period, but, but especially not to them. Do what's right and good. So Joseph's report, it's not evidence that he's a punk. It's evidence that he's faithful. You see, amongst all the brothers, Joseph is the faithful son. All the other brothers are disobedient, but Joseph is faithful. And so verse 3 tells us that Israel loved Joseph. You remember Israel's... uh, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and and for the rest of the book, it'll kind of flip back and forth. And typically, when when Jacob is near, uh, physically in proximity to Joseph, it'll use the name Israel. And then when he's far away from Joseph, it will use the name Jacob. Typically, when uh, Jacob is doing um, things that he are good it will say Israel. Typically when Jacob is doing things he ought not to do, it will, you know, his old self, he'll, it'll use the word, the name Jacob. And so here it says Israel. Israel loved Joseph. Why did, why did he love Joseph? And we could assume it was because Joseph kind of earned that by his good conduct, and, and that would probably, you know, make some sense, but that's not what it actually says. What it actually says is he loved him because, because Joseph was the son of his old age. Remember, Joseph, or Jacob had had married Rachel. That was the his intention was to marry Rachel, and it all got mixed up. He ended up with four wives, with sons from four, uh, three of them, and Rachel hadn't had a son. And he and, and and here Jacob is getting older and older and older. And finally, Rachel gives birth to Joseph. And Jacob loves Joseph. And he gives him this special robe. Why? Why, did, why does he give him this special robe? I think there may be more going on here than simply, you know, my favorite son gets a, a larger clothing allowance than my unfavorite son's. You see, most likely the robe indicated to everyone that Joseph, amongst all the brothers, was the heir apparent. He was the one, though he was 17 and his brothers were men. He was the heir apparent. And I think the text would indicate to us that giving Joseph the birthright was a wise decision. The firstborn, if you remember, had already forfeited his position by his own actions. And Joseph was the firstborn of the wife Jacob had intended to marry in the first place. I mean, he was the best choice by his own conduct. Maybe adorning his choice, maybe Jacob adorning his choice at 17 was maybe not not the best decision. You know, we could could nitpick on that, I suppose. Jacob, of all people, should have been aware of the animosity that parental favoritism can bring. Am I right? I mean, that whole your brother wants to kill you thing was kind of a big deal. You'd think you'd remember that? there's there's much debate as to whether or not you know this was the right decision for him to do here but 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 i think here's where i think the rub is for us i think this rubs against our modern sentiments right it rubs against our modern sentiments i mean the brothers the brothers don't even get participation ribbons you know I mean, you can give Joseph the, the robe to say that he's the heir apparent. At least, at least give the other brothers like a nice little participation rib and say like, good job, you're a brother too, you know? Thanks for participating in the family. This is kind of the way the world is right now. We can't stand, you know, the idea that one person wins and one person is chosen the others aren't and it's easy for us to jump to conclusions that that joseph is arrogant that he's strutting around with his robe you know you can almost see it it does not take much effort to see joseph like walking up you know and the brothers are you know shepherding you know the flocks and he's all kind of like what's up i don't know if you saw but dad gave me this awesome robe you know it doesn't take much effort for us to envision this, but as we read the text, what we realize is it actually the Bible doesn't actually give us any, any indication that Jacob or that Joseph does this. It gives us no indication whatsoever that Joseph, at any point, was arrogant at all. What was he going to do? not wear the robe that his dad gave him, well, that would be dishonoring to his father. What choice did he have? It wasn't wrong for him to wear it. So it doesn't say that, that when the brothers saw Joseph flaunting his robe, they hated him. No, it doesn't say that. It actually says in verse 4, when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Have you ever been hated because another person, a coworker, perceived that your boss liked you more than your coworker, and all you were do- trying to do is just do a good job? You're just trying to do your job well. Have you ever been treated poorly? because you, one of your siblings thought you were the favorite child when all you were trying to do is just be a good person, be a good son or a good daughter, do what's right. It's not your fault that your sibling is acting a fool and that your parents are upset at them about that. This last phrase that they would not speak peacefully to Him, it's it's pretty heavy. It really means that they couldn't say a single thing to Him that would even bring up any illusion of peace towards Him. Now, now you've all had someone that's kind of been a jerk to you before, right? Just often bullied you or or, or said mean things to you. This literally is saying that they would not say a single thing kind thing. In fact, not even just a neutral thing. They were just constantly, every single word was against Joseph. And here's Joseph pressing forward, doing what he's supposed to do already in the first 10 verses in the face of adversity and wickedness. See, Joseph, he's not, he's not an arrogant brother it just turns out that he's the beloved son he's the beloved son verses two through four they serve as a backdrop a setup for the important and shocking twist of verse five and following you see it's one thing to say that that Jacob has kind of chosen Joseph as the heir apparent that and that his brothers you know were kind of against him because of that fact but but verse five and following just takes the story and then raises it like a hundred times, just notches it up in an unexpected way. And you see, Joseph has a dream from God. And when he reports the dream to his brothers, it made them hate him even more. And what was this dream? Well, he actually it turns out has two dreams. One dream is uh, in the earthly realm, one dream is in the heavenly realm. In these two dreams, they have one interpretation that that's duplicated in order to communicate just how sure that these things will happen. This is sure on earth as much as this is sure in heaven, this will occur. The first dream is of sheaves in a field. Joseph's sheaf stood upright while the other sheaves, the brother's sheaves, gather around it and bow down. And the second dream is similar, but it adds a few elements. It's the sun and the moon and the stars. And they're all bowing down to Joseph's star, this whole family. No one disputes the interpretation of these dreams. It is clear to everyone what they mean the whole family would, will bow down to Joseph. Joseph will rule over his family. Not because Jacob chose him, but because God chose him. And again, here we find a potential objection to Joseph's character, don't we? You've heard it said, I'm sure, I've heard it. Well, isn't it kind of arrogant that Joseph would share these dreams with his brothers? Isn't it kind of arrogant that he'd be like, well, my sheaf was standing there, and then all your sheaves were bowing down to my sheaf, you know? Well, I, my star was there, and then the sun and the moon, and, and we begin to kind of add into Joseph's like retelling in our mind this kind of arrogant and cocky demeanor, this kind of uh, tone, if you will. But, but is that actually what the text communicates? Or is that just our assumption of what's going on? You see, think about it. The word of God through a dream has come to Joseph, not once, but twice. And it's undeniable. It's so undeniable that even the brothers, when they hear it, know exactly what it means. I'm sure that they'd all heard about their grandfather and their father and their great-grandfather having visions from God, and God promising them things. This is part of their family history, part of who they are. For, jo- for Joseph to have a dream, God again has spoken to our family. Why would he not share that with everyone? In fact, it would, be, it would actually be more ridiculous to think that he wouldn't share it. I, remember, uh, this is interesting, I was thinking about this. Remember remember back when Rebecca she got a word from God. She got a word from God about her sons, and one would rule over the other. But she doesn't she didn't share that. We, had, we got no indication in the text that he shared that that she shared that with her husband. Or or think about this, think about Abraham, when God spoke to Abraham saying, Sarah, your wife will have a child, and then Abraham didn't tell Sarah. And and, and he had to actually come back, send angels to go, oh, we we need to tell Sarah about this as well. And remember, we're thinking, why in the world would they not share what God had told them? Well, if we're going to criticize them for not sharing it, why do we suddenly criticize Joseph for sharing it? That doesn't make any sense. Because we assume he's arrogant when he does it. We assume bad motives when we're given no reason in the text to think so. But rather, we're given every reason in the text to think that Joseph is doing the faithful thing and the brothers are responding in wickedness and disobedience. And in fact, as the text says, right there in black and white, jealous envy. See, Joseph isn't arrogant. He's just the chosen son. He's the faithful son. He's the beloved son. He's the chosen son. The result of these dreams were that the brothers had even more hatred, even more jealousy towards him. Even Jacob, even Jacob rebukes him saying, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Jacob of all people should be familiar with having dreams from God, right? It's like the most significant moment in his life. He lays down his head on a rock in his most critical, uh, most vulnerable moment of his life. He's running with no possessions from his murderous brother. He lays his head on a rock, and he has a vision from God that changes his whole life. And here, Jacob's like, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Jacob ought to have known that when God gives a dream, it's a sure thing, so you better pay attention. We're actually given an indication of that, actually, because it says that though his immediate reaction is one of rebuke, he keeps these things in mind. So I want you to understand that the passage paints Joseph not as an arrogant or cocky person, but as the faithful son, the beloved son, the chosen son, and yet the rejected brother. So why have we assumed all of this time that there must be some deficiency in Joseph in all of these situations that would justify the reactions of his brothers, even Jacob, who should have known, who should have maybe even been happy about the dream because Jacob had chosen Joseph as well. Why did they all fail to see it rightly? Why do we fail to see it rarely? Well, I think think here's the deal. I think this is the real issue. The whole thing doesn't feel very good to us. It hurts our feels. We don't like people pointing out our faults. Bothers us at times to be around people whose high character reveals our lack of character. It bothers us to be around people whose self-control and discipline highlights our lack of control and our lack of discipline. It bothers us. It bothers us to be around someone whose talent or God-given skill or God-given ability highlights to us that we don't have that talent, that God hasn't given us those skills. It bothers us. We don't like that someone else might be picked and we aren't. Gives us visions of the kickball field in grade school, am I right? Anyone like me? I was terrible at kickball. And I was picked last almost every time. We don't like the idea of submitting to someone else or that we'll have to. Someone else is picked to be the boss and we're not picked to be the boss. You see, I think the deal is is we know the pride of our own hearts. We know how we would react if we were one of the brothers and we assume that pride in Joseph. We assume the pride if we were the chosen son, the beloved son. And we don't like the feeling when we put ourselves in the shoes of one of the other brothers. Because the truth is, we don't like it because we aren't Joseph. We're a brother. We don't like it because because we're not Joseph. You and I, we're not Joseph. We're one of the brothers. We're jealous. We're wicked. We're negligent. We're selfish. We just are, most of the time. So what are we to do about it? As we go through Joseph's story, I want you to see that his life, his life is kind of the penultimate example of the big problem that we're facing. How can God keep his promises with so much sin and so much trouble? If God promised Joseph would rule over his family, how is he going to keep that promise? And as we move forward in the story, we'll see that it gets a little more complicated. How is God going to do that? But we also see that Joseph points to the only real solution. You see, as we go through the story of Joseph, what I want you to understand, what we need to understand is that Joseph foreshadows Jesus. Jesus. Joseph is an appetizer to the gospel. Jesus is the faithful son who lives the life of integrity that we should have but haven't and lived it in the face of brothers who rejected him. Jesus is the one and only beloved of his father, the miracle child born to his mother, who is so adorned that he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, yet he wears it humbly, serving his father and serving his brothers. And Jesus is the chosen son. He's the one picked before the foundation of the world to solve all of the problems that the brothers, that you and I, were going to cause. even though we don't have eyes to see it yet. Jesus is the rejected brother. All of us come into this world, we come into this world not like Joseph, but like the brothers, arrogant, wicked, unsubmissive, jealous. But what the brothers don't realize is that all those, what the brothers don't realize is what all those who don't know Christ fail to realize as well. They hear that they must bow down to Christ and it disturbs them. They think that this act of submission in some way lessens them. But what Joseph's brothers couldn't possibly understand in this moment about Joseph's dream is this. It wasn't only a declaration that he would be the authority over them, but it was a declaration that he would be the salvation of them. What they don't realize in that moment is that dream is actually their salvation. That if it wasn't for the fact that that dream would come true, they would die of famine in the desert. But they couldn't see it then. They wouldn't see it for years. Do you see it? Do you see... It's not just that Jesus is the authority over you, but in being the authority over you, he's actually the salvation of you. And that's the only way it can work. That's right. That's right. It's the only way. You don't get one without the other, you don't get salvation without submission. Hebrews 2, it says it like this. It says, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, that is Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, at present, right now, friends... We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. You see, just as Joseph, who was rejected, saves his family and so many others, so Jesus, in His rejection, goes to the cross so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone who would be saved. And the Father puts him in charge of everything, that every single knee will bow to him. Do you know that? Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. There is not a single knee, a single sheaf, a single star that will not bow to him, period. And this was always God's plan. It was always God's plan that Jesus would be the faithful and the beloved and the chosen son. But it was also always God's plan that he would be the exalted son. And what Joseph foreshadows, Jesus did. And Jesus is king over everything right now. But the good news, it doesn't stop there. Hebrews continues, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder and... Uh, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, that is why Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see, Jesus, the rejected brother, in his rejection, makes us who rejected him into brothers, and he is not ashamed. Despite our unsubmissiveness, despite our jealousy, despite our arrogance, despite our negligence, despite our disobedience, He is not ashamed to call those who come to the Father through Him brothers. The chosen Son brings many sons to glory. And as we recognize Jesus for who He really is, God's chosen authority, our brother who is over us. Paradoxically, it does not bring us down. It does not lessen us in any way. Rather, it actually lifts us up. His victory becomes our victory. His exaltation becomes our exaltation. We flourish when we let go of our envy and recognize God's authority. And so with that, I want to give you just a few quick reminders. When someone is rightly placed as an authority over you, they do so, whether they realize it or not, at the permission of God. And so we should respect them as such. When they act in accordance with God's authority over them, that's a good thing. Whether they realize it, that's what they're doing or not. And when they use their authority to call us to do things that are not in submission to God's authority, it is our responsibility to reject their authority and to obey God instead. And when you are placed as an authority over others, you are there. You are there by God's permission alone. Because God says so. And you ought to act accordingly, remembering He is still the authority over you. And when someone is a corrupt or wicked or maybe a foolish authority, you may be rejected and you may be hated for doing the right thing. In fact, we ought to expect that when we as Christians live faithful lives in the midst of wicked and perverse authorities, that we will be rejected and hated at times. But when that happens, I want you to remember that there's one critical difference for us. One important truth that's different in the history of the world than where Joseph is, and it's that the true Joseph has already won the decisive victory and He is already ruling, and even if we don't always see it at present, one day we will, and we can look to Him because we see Him. Let's pray. Lord,